Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 430 of the podcast for November 3rd, 2021. Our guests today are Matt Zako and Eric Effington. You'll learn more about them in a minute. They are authors of the newly released book called The Power of Process. So to find a link to that book and all sorts of show notes and more, go to leanblog.org slash 430. As always, thanks for listening. Well, welcome to the podcast. We are joined today. We have two guests. They are co-authors of a new book called The Power of Process, and they are Matt Zako and Eric Ethington. Um, so first off, Eric, Matt, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Very good. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Mark. So let's just tell you a little bit more, and, and you'll hear more from Eric and Matt in their own words. Um, Eric is a consultant through his company, Lean Shift Consulting. You'll notice I said that very, I tried to say that very carefully, Lean Shift Consulting. Uh, he is also a senior lean coach and program manager of lean product and process development with the Lean Enterprise Institute. And uh, Matt is also LEI faculty. He has a relatively new role uh, as a lean leader at GE Hitachi Nuclear Energy, but the book and the things we'll be talking about today are based off of previous experiences, right, Matt? That's correct. Thanks, Mark. So I, uh, all of us are industrial engineers, um, which, which is cool. We have um, you know, different backgrounds and experiences here. But um, you know, first off, as we, we often do, I like to hear the lean origin story, if you will. Where, where and when did you first learn about lean? What was the context? Um, Eric, if, um, if you can go first on that. Okay. Um, probably my origins really, uh, and, and again, it goes back to being an industrial engineer, and it was before the term lean was really coined, but uh, there was this new thing that we were starting to look at. I was at Delco Electronics and we're starting to look at what was called throughput cycle time. And it really was really more of a customer demand driven lead time. And I happened to be the industrial engineer for an area and started just applying this tool. And we were using phrases like be the part, you know, if you're this mm -hmm. little can and you fall out of a stamping press, how long do you get used at the next operation and going through all that? And it was just really eye-opening, like how much stuff we had in baskets and bins and riding around on, you know, fork trucks and things like that. And that was probably my wake up that, wow, there was better to be done. Uh, it wasn't as holistic as what I'd say lean might be these days, but uh, it was really kind of a wake-up call for me. I mean, it sounds like if you were going to focus on anything, focusing on flow, it's not a bad place to start. Focusing on flow, just as a more general question, that's different than focusing on cost. I mean, it's better, right? Yeah. Yeah. And actually it was, it, it was just a, an interesting thing because it caused us to do a lot of, I'll say, good stuff. Uh, you know, reducing inventories, getting scheduling systems linked and stuff like that. In fact, once in a while when I'm, you know, uh, uh, talking to somebody who's struggling with lean, I'll actually pull out the old, old, old throughput cycle time chart. Like, okay, if you're not getting some of these other things, see if you can do this first. It's, it's again, it's not a bad, a bad place to, to begin. And it's work that also sort of predates 
John Shook's book on learning to see and value stream mapping, but even, I mean, was there a similar tool that, that was being used or focusing on that, that flow, at least through the factory value stream? It, it was similar, but it was really kind of the bottom half of the value stream map. Uh, there wasn't a lot of attention on making the invisible information flow visible. And that was kind of like the aha moment when I was introduced to value stream mapping. It's like, wow, there's, there's the whole control aspect of this that I hadn't even really thought of. Yeah. Cool. Well, Matt, how, how about you? What, what's your personal lean origin story? Yeah. So for me, uh, I was, when I was a undergraduate student, I was actually a physics major at a small school and, uh, I got introduced actually to Deming's out of the crisis book somehow. One of my professors had recommended it. And, uh, I was very interested in, you know, just thought, Hey, this total quality management or this type of work, it seems very straightforward and interesting. And then that led me to the, uh, applied to the industrial engineering program at the university of Michigan. And there I, I met a, uh, a person who changed my life uh, going forward was a pers- per- professor named Walton Ham- Hancock. And, uh, and then through him, I was introduced to John Shook. John had just joined up uh, when I joined University of Michigan as a student. He had just left Toyota and was uh, working in the fa- on the faculty there. So I was very fortunate to um, it tied right in with my interest in, in Deming's work. So from there, I was able to get a research assistantship assistantship position and uh, got to, you know, work right with John and then got introduced to Mike Rother, Jeff Liker, Al Ward, you know, numerous faculty within the University of Michigan there that were in in the space. And we were really starting to look into the product development uh, area when I was in in school. And then from there, uh, it just took off. So for me, I was just in the right place at the right time, I guess. And uh, yeah, I've been a a fan and trying to learn ever since. And then Eric and I met a few years after that. And (laughs) Here we are today, so, right? Well, so so how did the two of you meet then? Uh, well, yeah, I guess I'll I'll pivot. Eric, you can leave out any holes I have. But Eric had just, yeah. uh, if uh, my uh, memory serves me correctly, he had just moved from Indiana, got, been relocated to Flint, Michigan, and, and we had one of our we were creating a model plant uh, concept there at one of our one of our um, operations in Flint. I was in the I managed an industrial engineering team, and Eric was the um, manufacturing system manager at, at the site, one of our larger sites within the within the company, a former automotive supplier. And uh, Eric was effectively the change agent there that was responsible for working with uh, Yamada-san, Mr. Yamada, who who we uh, uh, you know thank uh, for everything he taught us, and uh, and I was able to support Eric and his team there is uh, with my t- t- team. I had an industrial engineering group that was divisional based. So we were covering many of the, the large sites and we were focusing in on the ones that uh, were the model plant areas. So Eric and I met probably, I think, late 1997 or so. And uh, yeah, we've been collaborating ever since. So we worked together there for about five or six years. And then we rejoined up in the late 2000s uh, through our work with the Lean Enterprise Institute. And then, yeah, and, and I've been noodling on this book idea for years and years and uh, finally put pencil to paper. and. Uh, yeah, here and brought us to to the book we have now. What did I leave Eric. out, Eric? <laughs> I think you, I think you hit all the high points pretty well. Yeah. So your your answers match. Like you, you probably both remember the the old game show, the Newlywed Game. It would be fun to take co-authors, be like the newly published game, and and see if you. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had an advantage because Matt mentioned he was a, in a divisional group, and there were a lot of divisional resources. 
And so we very deliberately would plan because the division headquarters was in Flint also, we would plan our fourth quarter of continuous improvement stuff very heavy to draw on the divisional resources because we knew the travel budget would get cut every year <laughs> and they had nowhere to go, but to our plant. And so, and so we uh, got a lot of, uh, a lot of face time that way too. Yeah. Um, one, one follow-up question for you, Matt, because it's a similarity to my perspective before I ever got any sort of deep dive into TPS and then lean um, I, I read Deming's book out of the crisis. Like my dad was an electrical engineer at General Motors, and I've probably I've mentioned before in other episodes, he had the he, he went through one of the famous four-day workshop experiences and had the book. And as a curious engineering student, I read it. So my, my question for you though, I'll share a reflection when I hear your reactions. Um, I, I depending on the day, I'll say, you know, I'll say, well, it's some it's it's both the best book I ever read, and sometimes the worst because it sets up, I don't know, expectations or it kind of shows what could be possible in a workplace. And because a lot of organizations, most organizations are not managed through the Deming philosophy. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll say, oh, I almost wish I'd never been exposed to that. I, similar That's thoughts right. or what, what's your recollection of the meaning of that book um, to you? No, I think it's true with uh, yeah, Deming's book or many other great books out there is, you know, once you learn about what what is possible and it almost shows a bigger gap between where you are now and where you want to be. And if the organization you're at is not capable of reaching that higher potential, it, it uh, almost has a negative, it really does have a negative consequence, right? Where you, you, you realize, you realize it's a, it's a you know, moment of realization of how big the gap is where you need to be versus before maybe we were ignorant of, of, you know, of the gap or didn't have a really an appetite for, reaching that higher level. So no, I think you're exactly right. Yes. Reading those books can be very uh, eye-opening and frustrating at times as well. But uh, I always find those things are great. You know, just, they help reinforce where we want to go at the very least. A reminder of one form of true North anyway. Or, yeah. That's a great way to put it. And, and I've heard uh, somebody, you know, from the auto industry say a similar thing like you did, Matt, about a book like the Toyota way where somebody had been dismissive of like, oh, you know, that Toyota stuff. And then once they dig into it and read and, and, and not that Toyota is perfect, but there are, there's a good true North there. And then you become aware of that gap and, and that tolerance for the current condition. If you can do anything about it, maybe it's good to have less of a tolerance for that gap. If you feel like it's out of your control, unfortunately, I've, I've heard someone say like you did, it, it can be discouraging to learn of that gap. You know, I think to that point, Eric and I, I think we have a similar mindset when, whenever we work with people, we, uh, you know, when we see people get down, for example, um, you know, it's part of our role in our, in our jobs to help motivate them that they, they are a leader in an area and they can make a difference and, and not to give up because when we look all around us, you know, um, you know, I remember a few years ago, Eric and I were meeting with someone who was uh, complaining that their leader wasn't doing A3, the A3 process with them. And this person we were talking to is actually a manager of a, of a team of people. And we said, well, your people say the same thing about you, right? So you, you, uh, it was a good realization, good reminder that we are all leaders and, you know, we, we have to drive this in like a wedge and try to spread it. It doesn't just, you know, you don't have the CEO that magically he or she uh, is driving this across large organizations. So 
uh, yeah, on the same hand, you have to balance it out, right, with uh, not being discouraged, but also understanding that gap that is always put, trying to push you to, uh, you know, try to make each day better than the prior one. And I think, you know, one thing people get stuck in is the way it's always been. And so I want to bring it back to, to both of you, Matt and Eric. Uh, I, again, the book available now is called The Power of Process. I mean, I'm curious if either of you have a story to kind of elaborate on this idea of, you know, the way it's always been doesn't mean we can't change it. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on, on trying to help people break through to realize it is changeable? Let's, let's get started. Yeah, I don't, one place to actually even start is, uh, you know, this was probably late 90s in the plant. Matt and I were talking about in Flint, uh, a plant that at one point in time, Jim Womack visited and called it the acid test of lean. <laughs> he stood up in front of everybody and said, boy, if you can do lean here, you can do it anywhere. Um, but it, it was a good example of, you know, a few years before that, that visit, um, there was a lot of, a lot of difficulty. Um, and, uh, in fact, part of it was highlighted by, there was a major strike that shut down General Motors around 1998. And that was the plant. That was the site. Uh, uh, there was, uh, it was a, a dispute that started across town, but our site made components for every vehicle. So if we went down, the company went down. Um, and then you fast forward like a year or two later, and uh, it was a financial turnaround. It was a workforce turnaround and so on. And where a lot of it started, because there have been lots of very well-intended people on the management and in the workforce uh, over the years who've really legitimately tried to do things differently. And there have been lots of initiatives uh, launched, uh, none of them necessarily good or bad, but just attempted. But one of the things we really focused on there was instead of even, we didn't even call it lean, what we were doing. Uh, we just really focused on how do we make the work better? How do we make your job better? And by better, it isn't how do we make it easier so you have more time to sit around? It's like, how do we make this a better thing? And, uh, you know, better, more involved work, have you more involved in developing it, all, all the things that uh, people tend to know about lean. But when you start doing that over and over again, and, uh, and really, instead of it being a list of, you know, slogans, that at the end of the day, it's like, my job's not better. It's like, no, my job's truly better. This, this is what lean is supposed to be about. You know, it wasn't until maybe a year or two into it that we we're like, oh, by the way, this is what lean is. You know, <laughs> yeah. this is what it truly is. Matt, what are your thoughts on, you know, helping people break um, through the inertia of the way it's always been to creating something better? Yeah, I think to Eric's point, um, you know, the, you have to recognize there's lots of slogans and, you know, again, our career, we've seen many different uh, fads and slogans and phases. And uh, I think yeah, it gets down to, you have to get down to the individual level and how do you help reduce the struggles and frustrations at an individual level and without trying to force lean upon them or, you know, the, the mindset or the thinking. And then once you've done that, then you can bring it back to, I think, like Eric was saying and say, this is what it's supposed to be. This, you know, the history 
shows us what it, you know, what it was and it, what, it, what we did not want it to be. But when we can start engaging, you know, the people actually everywhere, not just operations or manufacturing, but engineering. So I think the, the challenge is, yeah, you need to, um, you know, we used to really be hammered in our head, go slow to go fast. And I think, um, I think that's the, the lesson that I even today have to remind myself is let's not outrun our learning capability. Let's pick something and try to make a real change. And until we can do that and prove it, then we, we shouldn't move, move past that. So I think if you can find a willing participant that wants to take that leap with you, then, I mean, that's the best place to start and then build from there. I mean, and then you can challenge them to do things differently without, uh, you know, having to be too stressful or risk risky either. So. Mm-hmm. So we, we talk about the way it's always been. I mean, there's the work, but then there's a layer of the way we've always designed the work or we'll, we'll come back and talk more about healthcare. Sometimes it's more a matter of the way the work just evolved as opposed to being designed. And so I think one thing is, you know, there's a lot of interesting things in your book. And again, the title is the power of process. And, and there's this focus on process design or what you call lean process design. You know, a lot of times when people hear process, the next word is process improvement in the context of lean. Um, how do you define process development and, and why, why is that so important? I'd go first on this one, Matt, just mix it up. That's right. Well, I think, you know, process can be defined in many ways for, for one in, in process development, obviously, but uh, in this case, we're looking at creating, you know, new ways of working. So if you have a new product or a new service, you have to, you know, you actually have to create the process, the steps of work, the activities, the operations, right, right down to the, you know, kind of micro level where you're doing individual motion. So to do this properly, you need to do that upfront. Um, or what the risk is it just evolves, like, like you were mentioning, Mark. So yeah, for process development in the context of the book, it's looking at if you have a new product or new service, or if you need to add new capacity, this is your chance to look at how the work should be done and, you know, infusing in lean, you know, principles, techniques, et cetera. Um, because too often, right. It's, it's not thought of until it's too late. And, you know, in the healthcare sense, right. There's workarounds and other, um, you know, practices that just evolve and, uh, create, a, a mess uh, or chaos. So. I mean, Eric, do you have some thoughts to add either around a definition of, process design, process development, or, or maybe just to the point of the importance of this? Yeah, um, it's. I like to sometimes think of it as essentially being learning the right thing at the right time. Um, and, and then also capturing that learning. And so, uh, you know, we, we lay it out in the book that you don't get into the detailed design until later. Uh, that people like to jump in and let, let's start designing at a real detailed level, but there's things you don't know yet. You shouldn't be at that level yet. And so there's certain things you need to learn before others, before others. And eventually you get to that detailed design. And so um, I sometimes I like to look at it in, in the, you know, in that way that it's learning the right things at the right time. And, in, in you know, in kind of, a, I'll say a, a general uh, sequence, because you start getting that stuff out of phase or better yet, what I often see is we don't even really capture the learning in the at all. It, it, what we do is we take what we did before, 
but there's some new technology, whether it's a new process technology or new product technology is being forced in. And we drop that in the middle of what we did before. And then we, that's what gets launched and we live with the consequences. And then out come the continuous improvement resources and not bashing them. They do all sorts of great work, Matt. And I've built great careers off of that. Okay. <laughs> but then they come and go, wow, this, you know, we, we've seen it plenty of times where the new line is actually two years old in thinking uh, the, the, a lot of the continuous improvement folks in the various facilities we go into have taken the old process and made it better, but somehow that learning doesn't get back up front. And so we start two years behind and, and that happens on, over again. So, yeah, I, I sometimes think about it in just terms of learning and you know, learning the right mm-hmm. things at the right time. So when you talk about, you know, technologies or, you know, we think of like, you know, an operation versus how that fits into the flow of a process, I, you're, you're triggering memories. I think of two examples. When I was at General Motors doing engine block machining, there was technology that was put in place in the early 90s. It was supposed to be continuous flow transfer lines from state machining station to machining station. And I think the old setup was more of very much a batch and queue. You would just run each machine in a decoupled way. You need piled up inventory. And if one machine went down, you'd pull from buffers. And there were all kinds of dysfunctions from that. So you had equipment now that had like a built-in flow buffer of maybe five parts between machines. The old habit of when operation 30 is down, keep 10 and 20 running and pull parts off and pile them up. And like (laughs) the space wasn't designed to allow that to happen, there were instances where it was arguably not safe for people to be doing it because that was not the design intent. But uh, there, there was this interesting disconnect between the design intent and the reality of then running the operation. So maybe let me let me just turn my old dusty 25-year memory into a question. Like, what can we do to help prevent disconnects from the people who are designing the process and then those who are going to then run said process? Yeah, I'll take a crack. And um, yes, I think what the first thing is to recognize, right, it's, there's a social and a technical system to, to process design. And in the book, we actually touch on this quite a bit. It, it's an important piece that I think early in my career, I didn't understand enough and until later on, that social aspect. But uh, um, definitely, I mean, an, an easy answer is, you know, involve people further upstream in, in the development, obviously, the people that run today's operations because they know it better than anybody and uh but you know de- definitely there, there needs to be a cross-functional nature to teams and you want to have uh people that understand the reality of of what's going on today but also the root cause of why some things are in place today that could be um removed or avoided in the first place so um and that that's you know having a capable capable people to give you that feedback because one thing Eric and I have seen many, many times in our career, and you know, there's an example in the book too, is where uh, you know an organization will, will invite someone from operations, right, to uh, be part of a development team. Then you know what Eric and I see is typically that phase is they really don't want you to be part of the team; they want you to just rubber stamp whatever they uh, yeah. <laughs> say is is the design, and uh, they want you there just to be a check in yeah. the box. Uh, so um, yeah. yeah. Not good. I mean, I, I hear people say things. I always try to call time out and say, wait a minute. When when someone will say, it, it could apply here. We want them to feel like they had input. I'm like, no, <laughs> come on. Like, It's either you had input or you didn't, right? 
I mean, That's Eric, right. what, what, what can, what else can we do to help break down those silos and make sure there's real input? I, I also think that uh, having some, at least a, a plan to, a plan to compare to, you might not hit the plan, but a plan to compare to timing wise, and then really raising the flag when the, the timing starts to slip. Um, having been one of those folks, I, I remember a very specific project and I was, it was really early in the development phase. And again, I was being asked to, to go be that operations person to, to provide that uh, input. And, and it was kind of like, we, we just want to be able to say there is an operations person here. And I started questioning because they they were doing tests and some things weren't happening the way they should have in the tests. And so you're gonna have to do them again. And it was okay. And then I go back, you know, two weeks later, we're gonna have another meeting and those tests didn't go quite right. And it slipped again. And that was okay. And I'm thinking the start of production date has not changed though. And so this is all going to come out of manufacturing eventually. And so there needs to be some sort of mechanism that when those, those call them milestones or whatever are hit and not met, that there's some sort of escalation so that we get the thing back on track. Um, otherwise, it does just become, yeah, we've had more people involved up front, but at the end of the day, it's still going to be a rush at the very end uh, to get it. And and we, I say manufacturing, but that could also be the opening of the clinic too, right? It, it, it still still applies. The, the doors open, the patients come in, and it's not the way you really wanted them to experience it. Yeah. Well, can, can one or both of you, it'd be good if you could elaborate a little bit more on this phrase, go slow to go fast, because I've heard it used in the context of getting a new factory up and running, of going through these cycles of expecting cycles of iteration. But then once that's figured out, then accelerate, as opposed to a, maybe an old mindset of we're going to design the perfect process and then expect to launch. And inevitably, there are the problems that prevent the go fast. Um, how, how does go slow to go fast um, get incorporated into the approaches you recommend? Yeah, I kind of wish there was like a, a you know some absolute limits to share with people. There there might not necessarily be, but uh, it you know some of it does come down to doing your due diligence on learning, uh, learning enough to be, you know, uh, be at a reasonable enough state that, okay, now that we know enough, we've done enough experimentation, we can, we can move on and start, you know, uh, we've gone deep enough. Now we can start going in breadth, go wider. Um, I, I think of this is when Matt and I first started working together. We spent, I'm not exaggerating from, it was March of 98 through September working on one cell. And I remember a manager came up to me during kind of a, a project review saying, you guys have been messing around with this cell for months. We, we've got 10 <laughs> others. When are we going to get to yeah. one of them? But then what we were able to do is we got, and it wasn't perfect. We came back and had to redo all the cells at some point in time, mm -hmm. but we got enough of an image that had enough of also a real impact you know, I mean, it was real savings. It wasn't uh, these cost avoidance savings or anything like that, but real impacts on, uh, you know, better ergonomics, uh, more productive, better quality, shorter lead times, all those things. Uh, but we got a strong enough image that 
after that, we were actually doing a new cell every every week. We would change one in week A. And also on week A, we'd be also doing kind of the social stuff Matt mentioned with the next cell to talk to them about here are the changes coming, come over to the previous cell, you can see what's going on. And then we were hopscotching and getting people's ideas as we did that. But it started with, you know, taking time to make sure we really understood the process and had a had a good image that we could then spread. And I think just, yeah, building off that, I think in the past we may have done something. So I with those cells, one of the great advantages was doing quick changeover um, and we were doing material delivery routes, things like that. And in a prior um, instance, we, we may have just gone across the board and done quick changeover on all the lines and then material routes everywhere without knowing how they connected. And so that would have been a failure because we wouldn't have been able to sustain, right, all those improvements and changes. So Fortunately, we had a great mentor in, in Yamada-san who uh, made us go slow to really understand it from an end-to-end system perspective. And we were able to, you know, get a, at, at the end, we were able to get a sustainable, pro, you know, production system with the social and technical aspects. But the other thing was we had to have a leader that uh, was patient and understood that as well, because I think that's one of the failure modes is, is the leader saying, you know, we don't have six months to perfect this we you know we need to have the whole plant in in nine months and, and you know what we did was we did get the whole plant done in nine months but we uh you know it wasn't a a uh, you know it was exponential actually what we the, the curve it's not a straight line right yeah and you, you, there's there's planned pressure you know a business planning to do something a new pro- a product that involves a new factory or a new process and this is planned out what happened in healthcare a lot in let's say the uh, the late 2020 timeframe was you got two weeks to get the mass vaccination clinic clinic up and running go and and part of me thinks well like we knew vaccination was going to be coming like it was a fire drill at a lot of organizations which is more just you know an observation and maybe didn't have to be that way but I did have the chance to visit a number of mass vaccination sites. And, you know, we talk about, you know, doing something new. I mean, they had done flu vaccination clinics. A lot of places had done drive-through vaccination, but I think we were seeing more of this in a greater scale. And, and, and the other observation, you know, earlier you were talking about the detail versus the overall flow, like, you know, the, the, the vaccine makers and the CDC had this incredibly too detailed, I would call it a two-page work instruction for here's how you prep the vaccine from the vials, here's how you prep the patient, here's how the needle goes into the arm. It seems like nobody designed a high-level process of here's what a door-to-door experience at a mass vaccination clinic should look like. So, so Eric, I have the benefit of, of seeing you nodding your head. I mean, do, do, did you have some experiences in, in this area that, that you can share? Well, you know, one of the things that uh, I'll say, and you can probably absolutely relate to this, as can probably a lot of uh, a lot of your audiences, when you start to understand these these approaches, uh, you you just can't go out in public without seeing stuff. To, right? I mean, it's just you're, you get into this analysis mode all the time, and yeah, and uh, and so I, I'm you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about my my experience of uh, you know 
getting my, my vaccine. It was a drive through clinic. And what was interesting is from the time you drove into the parking lot to when you left, it was actually very well orchestrated. There was, there was almost a, a triage approach where there were six car lanes. One lane was reserved for people who had gone online and got their paperwork and filled it out ahead of time. And so they went right in. The other five were people filling out paperwork. And, and, and so anyway, it was all, it all moved very, very well. So that was kind of like the, yeah, that that's done really well. Um, the, what wasn't involved was the website where you could get your paperwork to fill it out ahead of time. And so there, there was one of those where when you think about, again, you talked about the CDC and the, they went out one thing larger, but they didn't maybe involve the health department IT people. Um, I was actually joking with my wife that the fact that we found those documents on their website, we should have gotten a job offer of some reason, some kind. It was like, this must be a test. It's so difficult. They couldn't have done this on purpose, you know? Um, but, uh, but, you know, you bring up the, also just the having, you know, having some sort of, you hear this a lot in lean, having some sort of crisis, right. And, and so obviously COVID's a crisis. Uh, when we were in Flint, we were in a financial crisis, um, I've also, you know, this is probably about eight years ago, I had LASIK done and kind of the burning platform or crisis there is the piece of equipment, the laser and what it costs. And they have to have a full time, almost engineer that maintains that thing. And so, and so that piece of equipment needs to be cycling all the time. And, uh, but I'll tell you, that was like one of my first exposures to a well orchestrated healthcare type situation where as soon as you walked in the door, you were constantly flowing from room to room to this, to that and done. That was uh, pretty impressive. Yeah. I mean, when you see that, it it is impressive. Sometimes it's a matter of incentives. I had the chance to visit a cosmetic surgeon in Dallas who's actually published journal articles about applications of the Toyota production system to the cosmetic surgery he did. And he was so focused on flow and reducing wasted motion. There were huge benefits to the patient, less time under anesthesia, easier, faster, less painful recovery. And his flow rate was so good. He was basically working less and making more money than than other surgeons. And, And he would sandbag his numbers. He said, if I told other surgeons how quickly I could do a case, they either wouldn't believe me or they'd think I was terrible. But there was no, it went together. Good flow, good quality. He said you had to see it to really believe and understand it, um, to see what's possible because it really was um, step function improvement yeah. over his peers. But but Matt, did you have an opportunity? Like I, I was only you know an invited guest to a few clinics to see. I, I went once to get my J and J shot at a, a drive through clinic. Did you? What, what, what exposure did you get to either observing or getting to participate in any of that? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I was able to experience the drive-through uh, model and yeah, it was a, a bit, uh, a little, not as great of, his, of, a, of, his, of an experience, maybe that Eric had, but uh, it's not bad, but um, I definitely think, yeah, there's the opportunity to, you know, you would think that healthcare organizations and some did, I know they did mock-ups and they did uh, plan these things out ahead of time, especially if it's going to be such a high volume. I think a challenge in, in any process, 
the Eric and I had the benefit probably for gosh, 13, 14 years um, working with different health systems through our work with uh, the Lean Enterprise Institute and, you know, able to see surgery flow, clinic flow. You know, for me personally, I'd, I've seen brain surgeries, transplants, you know, just uh, normal routine robotic surgeries through all the firsthand as, as an observer. And, and uh, variability management is, is, a, is a key, I think, within um, healthcare or any process because things will go wrong. And that's for the social system and the kind of the help chain or and on system uh, is, is there to help because things will not go to plan and you want to have a process that's flexible to handle that. So I think, um, you know, as a patient, we see a lot of uh, these uh, outliers or abnormal situations that, and, you know, the, it gets amplified throughout the day. And, you know, that's why by the end of the day, right, you're two or three, two hours behind on your appointment or an hour behind. So I think that that's something that can definitely be improved in, uh, in any process, but definitely in healthcare, because you feel it firsthand through mm-hmm. waiting and, and, uh, and care, you know, it could affect your care quality as well. So, yeah. I mean, the, the thing I, I saw, I, I observed the drive through site, and then there was the one where I got vaccinated. And I mean, I wouldn't expect that they would have, they would tell everybody, put your car, you know, you can't set your cruise control at two miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Like you probably wouldn't want to do that. That's not safe. I don't want to be a moving target um, for somebody's needle as good as these nurses um, are giving injections. But I did see I think, you know, the batch and batch and queue thinking come into play at these couple of different sites. If you have a lane of 10 or 12 or 15 cars, depending on the place, and you fill up the lane and there are reasons to keep the cars stationary and to think about moving cars with people. But the the design was basically like, well, we're going to vaccinate everybody as a batch. And when everybody in that batch is done, you can all leave um, as opposed to one site where they had actually figured out a way to do one car at a time and keep the cars stationary and take safety into account. So it, it's interesting, again, you bring up this point of, um, or the, you know, this notion of the opportunity to design a new process instead of just falling into habit. But anyway, shifting, shifting back to a question, you know, I think, you know, first off the observation, the, the clinics that I saw were designed well. You know, you could say there was probably this end-to-end lean process design as much as they could control. Former NUMI person at a site, part of the team in San Diego. Uh, Toyota working with the city of Frisco in Dallas. Like it's, it's a joy to see a well-designed process. But even at the Toyota site, they admitted, no shame in this, um, to doing some Kaizen of realizing that they would send patients to walk to the next table and that next table, depending on how fast the patient moves, you know, it was a long distance. So the vaccinator is sitting there totally idle in between patients. They were spending as much time waiting for the next patient as they were vaccinating. So their countermeasure was to set up what they called on-deck chairs of basically stage a single patient queue right next to the table, six feet away, mm-hmm. to minimize that distance. So I, it, I thought it was fascinating to see this combination of like they designed a really good process, but yet they, they, they kaizen it. So I, I, the, the question is, how do you strike the balance between we want to be diligent, we want to design a good process while also recognizing it's never going to be perfect, we'll, we'll, we'll improve it. Do you, do you try to have a process that's 90% good? Maybe you can't quantify that, but what are, what are your thoughts? 
You, you know, um, I, I think some of it is rooted in just, uh, um, I'll say some risk management. Uh, uh, we like to use the phrase creativity before capital. And, and so when I say risk management, um, I'm more comfortable going forward with a process that might even be less, less refined if there's a lot of flexibility and because we, it's not like we've gone and hard tooled or spent all this money on the latest software system or spent the, because as soon as you've done that, then you better be 99% correct. But if you've done some creative things first, like you said, on deck chairs, okay? Because there is probably somebody that could sell some software to help manage the flow of people through there too, right? And I'm not going to say good or bad. It just, there could be something out there, some queue management software. But you know what? Let's try these on deck chairs because we're in an audit, you know, we're in a, you know, a civic center or something. There's a bunch of chairs over against the wall. Let's put them here, you know? Uh, you know, and so that's that's kind of, that. it's not a real solid answer, but it's kind of like that you can be a lot more relaxed about something that has flexibility because you've managed the risks of the capital investment and and, and so on. Um, our, we mentioned, uh, Matt's mentioned a Yamada-san before. He used to criticize us like, oh, you must be a rich company because we would always jump to the new machine or the new system or the new software. And he was wasn't anti-technology, but he was like technology with a purpose. And uh, and if you really look at the basic work, that can help to inform what equipment you should buy. And then that can help to inform what configuration it all should be in relative to each other. Um, but we often like to just jump to the end and it's like, oh, we'll buy this new thing. We'll do this. And then, then you probably need to be 99% correct. Yeah, no, that, 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 that was a great answer, Eric, and that's brilliant. Um, what I hear you saying is the more flexibility you have, the less perfect you need to be. So like thinking of, you're talking about messing around with that cell. If, if everything is on wheels and it's movable, you can experiment. If you're digging out concrete and putting machines deep into the floor, you better have it perfect. Yeah. Matt, what do you have thoughts to, to add on that? Yeah, and I just think another one is just yeah, we we talk about fidelity as well. Uh, what's the proper level of fidelity to to uh, mock something up? You know, do you, do you to test it out? So um, you know, cardboard is, uh, is is a great tool, right, for mocking up a process. So so for example, in the vaccine clinic, you know, hopefully they had a chance. All all these clinics, I'm sure the ones that were well set up physically represented it with mock-up or other cheap materials and, and simulated the flow with real patients and cycle time of, uh, of the walking and things like that. So then you can try things real quickly on the fly before the launch. So that, that's, that's another key piece of it is, is uh, learning up, upstream learning before launch versus right at launch, because that's where the whole, you know, the, the, the word that Eric touched on earlier, you know, our hypothesis is that, most of what really is being done that we're calling Kaizen, right, is really just rework or the Japanese word Tozen. So, and, uh, and it's never, you're never going to have it hundred uh, percent debugged, but it'd better to have it 90 or 95% versus the opposite. So, yeah. Yeah. I think the way I articulated that once in a blog post was your ability to continuously improve shouldn't be an excuse to 
just kind of throw a bad process out there. Like, ah, let's not invest in process design because that's what we have continuous improvement for. You would say, no, 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 bad idea. You can have both, right? Good process design and good process improvement. Yeah, yeah. In fact, that uh, you know, if if you don't do that, uh, you may say, "Oh, our company's been practicing lean things, or our organization's been practicing lean for you know decades," and the people who are living in those processes day to day go, "This is what lean is." And so mm. now, when you go out there with continuous improvement folks to try and make it better, you you already have a you know, like a hill to climb to, to convince them that you're really going to, you're really there to help, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, so one thing I think I hear you saying, and I saw in the book preview was make sure you learn from one cycle to the next of new process. So like the, this, these sites, like the Toyota Frisco site, not capital intensive, they had open space, bankrupt Sears store, the city and the mall said, here, use the space. Tables, chairs, like very easy to be flexible. And then they learned with the on-deck chairs. And then a couple of months later, poof, that process is gone because vaccination was happening in different ways in different places. I would imagine if, let's say, for booster shots, they said, you know what, we're going to stand this back up again for a month and get through 7,000 people a day for booster shots. I'd, I'd wager a large amount that Toyota in the city of Frisco would remember the on-deck chair approach, and that would be set up now as the baseline, as opposed to starting from scratch, throwing it out there the way we've always done it, quote unquote, and then having to relearn, oh, right, this doesn't work as well without an on-deck circle. That would be maybe just one example or even just a simple example. Do you have better examples of like the, this need to, to have organizational learning and not just repeat the same Kaizen improvements over and over? Yeah, yeah, and I, I just to kind of build off what you were talking about, Mark, is you know, the challenge is if if those same people are not involved in setting up that process, the question is, would they set it up the same or not? You know, they probably they yeah, they may regret regress back. And a a, a fundamental in all this is um, you know, we challenge organizations to create what we call a bill of process. And that becomes kind of the standard. So for example, that you know, that that health clinic. Hopefully they would they create and document that as their bill of process and not just be right a, a couple of pages of paper, but actually say this is what this is how we do it. Here's the cycle times, and then you can you know the booster may be a bit different uh, cycle time, different work. So you know that that may change it. But uh, but no, there, I mean definitely there's uh, I mean I mean uh, there's so many examples out there right where you know um, we're doing a late interventional uh event or process design review on something and, and we quite we always question why do we put so much automation in here or why you know why why aren't the cycle times of the batching uh work and you know just i mean the example in the book that we that we have is based on a real situation and it's where you take out you know three-fourths of the capital that's planned just by doing rolling up your sleeves and doing this work Fortunately, in in the case that was a real case, we were able to intervene and take out that capital. But too often, there were other situations where Eric and I uh, experienced where we, you know, were stuck with capital that, you know, millions of dollars that was overspent, big factory spaces that, uh, you know, were went un, unutilized because it was too late. The money had already been uh, spent by the time that the process designers got involved. Um, so. Yeah, Eric. What what uh, examples do you have off the top of your head? 
Well, actually, I was thinking about uh, just, you know, uh, one thing we do in the book is there's almost two interwoven stories. There's the work of process development, and then there's the process of process development, kind of like the, how do you take the, the work that maybe an individual team's going through, capture some of these lessons and feed it up into, okay, how are you going to do this stuff going forward? And one thing we often recommend organizations do up front is identify somebody to be the system architect. Uh, because early on, someone needs to really be looking out for all of this stuff. Um, you would like it to live in all that knowledge to live you know, in systems and processes, but they don't exist yet. And so someone maybe needs to be, uh, you know, kind of that embedded knowledge of the organization to be able to, uh, to carry some of that stuff. I, I remember it when Matt and I were working together and that was part of my role, um, our lines, when Matt mentioned bill of process, I'm like, yep, uh, final assembly lines, 15 seconds. Okay. That, that's the answer. Okay. Um, and uh, there were a lot of, but there was a lot of thinking that went into, it started in the mid to high twenties. It was different for every cell, but as we really started understanding the work and we understood the absolute importance of balance between process steps of getting in as balanced as possible. And they gone through that real good work of truly getting there. Um, 15 seconds was the answer. And so when a new customer requirement came out that needed to be tested, we were absolutely, yep, that sounds great. It's 15 seconds. <laughs> in other words, don't go and put some test machine on a test machine that goes to 25 seconds. That is not an acceptable answer. And the reality is the engineers can make it 15 seconds, but they'd never really been given a target before. Right. Yeah. And so and so there is that need for that, I think, system architect to uh, in the early stages and maybe mm -hmm. even ongoing someone that at least owns the process and keeps mm -hmm. checking it. Like, is it doing what it's supposed to? Are we capturing our learning and so on? Is that the equivalent that is that the process design equivalent to a value stream manager? It sounds similar. Yeah. 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 Um, probably, yeah, what we call chief engineer. Yeah. Uh, doesn't have to be oh. an engineer. Doesn't okay. have to be a chief engineer. Doesn't have to be an engineer, right? But it could be yeah. a. Well, I think in the book, we, yeah, we call it a chief uh, chief process designer, chief process engineer. Mm -hmm. um, Toyota has chief production system engineers. You know, there's chief engineer as well. But mm -hmm. uh, I think the the point is, yeah, right, Eric. As Eric mentioned, someone has to take responsibility for this. Uh, that's in, in not just for developing a great process, but for embedding it into the into the way work should be designed going forward. And then the, I think a second piece of this um, that we touched on briefly earlier is just, you got to control the money uh, you know, that's spent on capital or facilities. And, and all you need is a leader that refuses to sign off on a, on a you know, at a key uh, capital approval stage. You know, that's, that's another, I'm not saying it's an easy way to start, but it's uh, one way to start is you have a leader that just demands that things be done differently. And then you, have, you know, you identify some, uh, a team of people that want to do this differently. And, and then you, uh, you can block some time to start doing that. So, but if we keep spending, you know, again, root cause, if we keep spending money earlier and doing these things, it's, it's hard to break that cycle. Mm -hmm. So one other question, and, and this touches into the book and in the last couple of minutes here, we'll, we'll give people 
uh, a little bit of an overview of how the book is structured. And, and again, that book is um, The Power of Process. You, you, you talk about you know, this idea, you, you, one or both of you used the word slogans earlier in the book. You say, no slogans, no absolutes. Can you share a little more about that? What is a slogan or an absolute that has gotten people in trouble before? Yeah, well, we'll probably get in trouble for using these because there's going to be people out there who live by these. But like, um, it, but a U-shaped cell, uh, no, let the work define the shape of the flow. Don't don't go in and force stuff into U-shapes because we saw plenty of U-shaped cells that actually all the process steps in there shouldn't even been in the same cell to begin with. It should have been two different cells and they each should have been different shapes, but we just shoved it all together because it's U-shaped cell. And what it really comes down to is just not understanding the purpose of some of these tools. Um, Mr. Yamada really taught us the phrase, not single piece flow, small lot flow as small as possible. Okay. But there, we had, uh, I remember one example where we were, uh, showing them a single piece flow is a new line, new technology and everything. He showed us that going to six piece flow, we could cut the labor by a third. <laughs> and it was just like, you know, but we were so excited. It's single piece flow. And he's like, oh, six piece flow is probably better. And he took us through it. We, we simulated it right then and there, again, through this low fidelity simulation. And it's like, wow, yeah. And so it, it it's just, uh, it's stitching together all of these slogans that all might individually be great and well-intended, but what you end up with is a stitch together, like, uh, you know, in the spirit of Halloween right now, uh, stitch together Frankenstein, you know, yeah. you got all the best pieces together, but it doesn't add up to something you really want. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the difference between learning and adopting principles as opposed to copying tools. Like the principles, if you're at that level may lead you to like you said, not always a U-shaped cell, not always single piece flow. Like if you're baking cookies for a family or for a bake sale or as at a store, you're not going to put one dough ball on the tray at a time. <laughs> yeah. If your sales were a hundred cookies a day, why why would you do one piece flow through the oven? If you know you could do a reasonable batch, a small lot without overproducing, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah I think that. I was going to say, Mark, yeah, on that, on that note, I think another uh, uh, kind of myth out there is the automation and how people view it. And uh, again, we, we were taught, you know, you start manual first and build your way up to higher levels of automation. Because if you start at a high level, you never can get, get back to the proper, the, the right mix that you need to be at. But that's definitely one where I think uh, a lot of people see uh you know labor people working as as evil and automation is the uh saving grace and it's far from it so you know the book is the the power of process but it's really it's all about people not not just people designing the process but you know people doing the work and it comes down to you know uh how do we you know again reduce those struggles and the frustrations that are in people's jobs by making more meaningful work and uh and again you have to start at the fundamental manual level and then work up from there because I, I think the myth is yeah automation solves a lot of problems but it actually i think creates more uh in some cases than than it helps so well so maybe two final questions um you know first off uh, for you eric and feel free to trade off if you'd rather answer the other but you know first off who, who is the target audience like who do you expect to be the readers of the book and then secondly talk a little bit about how the book is structured because it's not 
a dry textbook. There's a, a good design to it. Who, who wants to take the question on? Like, who, who is the typical reader? Matt, why don't you do reader and then I'll do structure. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I I'm hoping that uh, anybody that is struggling with you know, designing any new process or service, we'll see these uh, um, in, in the book, you know, Eric will go through the, the structure of it, but that we introduce a structure through the storytelling process that should help in any situation of thinking about process and how to flow your product or service. And there's a lot of new process happening in all industries, right? I mean, it could be somebody setting up a restaurant, a clinic, a factory, Pretty much anything where there's, would you say, is it focused on things where you have a physical process flow or are there applications to something that might be more electronic? Uh, it, it can work. Uh, you know, the example in the book is for a tangible, you know, real example. But um, if you think of the work of design, it actually is usually in, in the form of information data packages. So it definitely applies to, you know, software, uh, any, any type of process development. And uh Again, it's it's through the lens or a framework that is very structured that helps get to where you need to be. And in the the framework, which you know Eric can go through in more detail, it really forces you to not get ahead of yourself. And uh, because again, again, the, we talk about go slow to go fast. This this lens or framework helps support what you need to do for for process development. So we can improve the process for designing the process. That's what the book helps achieve, right? Yeah. And, it, and as Eric mentioned, yeah, it's easy. It's, there's been many skunk works or, you know, one-off teams in, you know, in any organization that have stood up a great new process with a, you know, a new product. Uh, but to your point, like with the clinic, okay, if things, if we have to do that again in four or five years, do we have the knowledge or wisdom from that prior experience to build upon? Probably not. So in this case, you know, companies on average spend anywhere from 3% to 15% a year on R&D, you know, in the uh, pharmaceutical space, medical device space, it's on the higher end, right? Uh, so, you know, if you're in a billion dollar company, that's, you know, 30, 40, you know, or higher million dollars a year you're spending in this. You know, if you're a $10 billion company, it's, you know, 10 times that. So there's significant sums of money spent. And um, so, that, you know, if you can just get any, you know, 10% of that back, it, it pays for itself. And, you know, in the book, again, this is a real story. We're, we typically see 6X, 8X, 10X payback for the upfront investment on this over the, uh, over the long run. That's great. And Eric, you know, the, the, the structure of, of the book, you know, kind of the style of, of how it's uh, written. Yeah, it's, uh, it's written as a story. There's not too much story. Um, uh, but there is, there's dialogue and to be honest, we, when we first started writing it, it was not that way. Um, but because of how cross-functional this is done well, it was really getting confusing of hearing about this team and that team and so on and so forth. But, um, plus what we also wanted to do is demonstrate the logic by which you arrive at some of these tools or some of these techniques and conclusions, um, cause we, this is more about the thinking than, uh, putting out a book with a bunch of dogma in it. And, uh, so we also wanted to kind of have some of those aha moments of the team where they build on top of each other's ideas. And we just felt like that that flowed better. Um, 
than, uh, again, maybe a, a checklist. Because if this was as simple as an Excel checklist, we would, have, we would have written a long time ago and packaged it and shipped it, right? Um, it, it isn't. It isn't that simple. And and as I mentioned a lot earlier, there were there's kind of two flows in it. There's the the work of process development, which is the working team, and then there's the process of process development, which is a leadership steering team trying to figure out their role in the whole thing too. How to be helpful, when to inter, you know when to intervene and when not. Um, when to spread and when not, uh, th- those kind of things. And so all of that's kind of woven in there. And then we've got our uh, six con model that takes folks through the the different lenses to look at and learn as they evolve from trying to grasp what's going on in their current situation all the way through. We've launched it, we've confirmed it's okay, and mm-hmm. now we got to continue to improve it. Hmm. Well, um, I'm excited to see. Uh, the full book. And I I hope listeners will go and check it out. It's available now. It's published by Taylor and Francis, uh, Productivity Press. That's a name you know. They've published a couple of my books and started back by Norman Bodak way in the day. So Productivity Press has a long lineage of uh, publishing books like this. This book is called The Power of Process. The authors, um, again, our guests today, Matt Zako, Eric Effington, um, congratulations on the release of the book. It's, uh, it's much needed. I know it's going to be really helpful. And thank you both for being here today. Okay. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Mark. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com. 